Heavenly Father, I thank you for your presence in this place. I thank you for your word, and I pray that you would open up our hearts. Holy Spirit, that this would not just be a story we read and we walk away from, but Father, this would be a, a moment to encounter your presence, to encounter your love. Show us new things. Teach us new things. Help us not to just be hearers of the word, but help us to be doers of the word, to put into practice what we learn today and to step out in boldness to share that with other people. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Well, many of you know, I moved here in uh, December of 2020 from the Portland area. And if you have never been to Portland, here's what you need to know about the Portland area. The Portland culture uh, encourages you to be weird. You know, keep Portland weird is like the slogan of Portland. Keep Portland weird. You can go to Portland and participate in a UFO festival and sign up for the world naked bike ride. Yes, you will literally walk around the city and see people riding their bikes naked in Portland. Or you can go to Portland, and uh, this is according to the show Portlandia. Has anybody ever seen the show Portlandia? You could go to Portland to retire at 20 with absolutely no ambition. Maybe pick up a few hours of work as a barista while you play in a grunge band with some friends that you met in high school. In Portland, it will rain, it will snow, it will hail, and it will be 65 and sunny all in the same day. It is crazy what's going on in Portland. People walk down the street dressed as clowns. I've seen somebody walk down the street as Captain Jack Sparrow one time. And every day is Casual Friday in Portland. It's it's crazy. There was one time in Portland I saw uh, an event happening. There was a citywide event happening in Pioneer Square. And on the other side of the street, there were people holding up signs uh, that said, Turn or Burn. And they were yelling at the people in the Portland Square, in the Pioneer Square. They were yelling at the people, turn or burn, turn or burn, repent, God is coming again. And they were yelling at these people. And I thought to myself, this is a terrible evangelism strategy. This, I don't know of anyone who has repented because they saw a sign and somebody was shouting, turn or burn, this place is going to be destroyed. But imagine for a moment... That uh, this is what I saw. Imagine for a moment that I walked into Pioneer Square. I saw this event happening. People shouting, turn or burn. And the people in the square looking, hearing this message and dropping to their knees and fasting and repenting. And the whole city fasts and repents and turns to God. Wouldn't that be insane? Strangely enough, this is similar to what we see in Jonah chapter 3. This what we think of as a terrible evangelism strategy. How is this possibly going to work? It gets a whole city saved. The whole city turns to God in this moment. We're going to be reading from Jonah chapter 3. And if you're just joining us, what has happened so far is in Jonah chapter 1, the word of the Lord comes to Jonah and says, Arise, go to Nineveh. And speak again and preach against the evil that has come there. And Jonah, instead of heeding the voice of the Lord, rebels and he boards a ship for Tarshish and he sails off to Tarshish. And while he's on the sea, the, the Lord, the Bible says that God hurled a great storm at the ship and there was tumultuous seas and the sailors thought they were going to drown. They called out to their gods and they woke Jonah up and said, who are you? What God do you serve? And Jonah told them, I serve Yahweh, the God who created the sea and the dry land. And they said, well, what should we do? And Jonah says, throw me over the ship and the sea will calm down for you. This was a death sentence. Jonah was saying, just kill me now. I'd rather die in the sea than repent and, 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 and follow what the Lord has commanded me to do. And so the men, they say, God, don't hold us accountable for this man's innocent blood. And they toss Jonah over the sea. And as they do, the waters calm. And the Bible says they have great fear of Yahweh. And they made sacrifices and vows to the Lord. They believed 
in Yahweh in this moment. And Jonah sinks down into the into the sea and as he does he's swallowed by a great fish that the lord sends his way and he spends three days and three nights in the belly of this fish and he prays this is what we talked about last week jonah prays a prayer of repentance he prays a prayer of repentance he's humble he offers thanksgiving to the lord he's penitent he uh, offers sacrifices and vows to the Lord, and the Lord saves Jonah and has him spat back out on the dry land. And this is where we're going to pick it up in Jonah chapter 3, verse 1. It says this. We're going to take it verse by verse. Not verse by verse, but little chunks at a time. Verse 1 says, Then the word of the Lord came to Jonah a second time. Aren't you grateful that we serve a God who gives us second chances? We serve the God of the second time. He is the God of the second time. And when Gideon was unsure about what God had called him to do, God called to Gideon a second time. When Samuel didn't recognize the voice of the Lord as a young boy, he wasn't sure about who it was that was calling after him. The Lord called out to Samuel a second time, a third time, until Samuel finally recognized God's voice. When Peter told Jesus, I'll never leave you, and he denied Jesus three times before Jesus' death, Jesus brought him onto the beach and commissioned Peter a second time. When Jonah filled his heart with hatred for Nineveh, and he ran away in rebellion to the Lord, God called to him a second time. Come on, praise God for the second time, amen? Do you know how many people in the Bible get it completely right the first time? Zero. Absolutely nobody. You know why? Yes, besides Jesus. Jesus got it right the first time. But besides Jesus, nobody gets it right the first time. You know why? Because God exclusively uses imperfect people who are going to need another shot again and again and again. I hope that brings encouragement to you this morning to know that you're not alone. You're not the only one who needs a second time You're not the only one who needs a second shot at at life. The question then becomes, since we serve the God of the second time, the question is, will you let guilt and shame keep you from getting back up and taking hold of the plan that God has from you? Because that's really what keeps us down, isn't it? It's the guilt and the shame of the past feeling that I am unequipped, I am unworthy. God can't use someone like me anymore. I am damaged goods. God can use somebody far better. I think there's some of you here today who need to hear that God still wants to use you. He still wants you. You may have messed up that marriage. You may have given a piece of yourself to someone before it was time. You may have said something that you shouldn't have. You may have done some things that you shouldn't have done, but you can get up. You can repent of those old ways. You can claim the blood of Jesus on your life and you can keep moving forward because that was what Jesus did on the cross. He got rid of our guilt and our shame so that when we do stumble, when we do fall the first time, God can call out a second time and we can get up and keep pursuing God. After Jonah disobeyed and made things difficult, Could God have used someone other than Jonah? Absolutely, he could have. But he didn't want anyone else. Because this mission to Nineveh wasn't just about transforming a city. It was about transforming a rebellious prophet as well. It was about doing a work in his person. God sometimes calls you into seasons of your life that isn't just about the calling, but it's about creating you into the person that God wants you to be. Did you know your mistakes don't define you? Your mistakes and your, your, your past does not define you, but God redeems your past in a way that it becomes a part of your testimony, and God uses your past. He uses your story, and only you have that story. God chooses to use us because he wants to mature us. He wants to make us complete. He wants to transform us. Let's continue reading verse 2. God said, go to the great city of Nineveh and proclaim to it the message I give you. And Jonah obeyed. 
the word of the Lord. And he went to Nineveh. Now, Nineveh was a very large city. It took three days to go through it. And Jonah began by going a day's journey into the city, proclaiming 40 more days and Nineveh will be overthrown. Now, imagine that God is hosting a meeting with some of the biggest church leaders in America. He gets together some of the biggest church leaders in America, people who have great evangelistic uh, churches that are growing, that are thriving here in America. And God pulls them together and he says, okay, guys, you know how much I love people, right? You all know how much I love people. Well, Nineveh has 300,000 people living there and there's some terrible things happening there. We've got to do something about it. Do you guys have any thoughts? This is what the first pastor might say. He would probably say, I got an idea. I think we should rent a large stadium and we should spend thousands of dollars in advertising, getting the people of Nineveh ready and making them aware of what is coming. That's what we should do. And the second pastor might have said, no, we should gather a great team of highly qualified men and send them ahead of us to train the follow-up team, the leadership team. So so after they come to the altar and they give their life, there's got to be some people that follow up with them right after the event is over. So we should train up the follow-up team. And the third pastor all these are great ideas, right? Third, third pastor says, you know, a, a city of that size would take a budget of over a million dollars before we could even consider campaigning, campaigning there, right? Before we would even consider doing an event there, we got to raise a million dollars first. And God would probably look at these pastors and say, all right, thank you guys for your thoughts. Those are all just great thoughts, but I think we're going to do something different. I'm going to send one man to march around a city of 300,000 people. And he's just going to start yelling at the top of his lungs, 40 days and Nineveh will be overturned. And believe me, guys, the whole city is going to repent. The whole city is going to turn. They're going to come to me and it's going to be great. What do you guys think? Can you imagine the faces around the room going, what, what are you, what are you thinking? How is this even possibly going to work? Did you know in the Hebrew, Jonah's message is only five words, 40 days Nineveh will be overturned. It's five words in Hebrew. He says the bare minimum, and it's probably on purpose because he doesn't want Nineveh to be spared. Did you notice in his message that there's some very important details that he's leaving out of his message that he's given to the Ninevites? Number one, he doesn't mention who sent him. He doesn't say, hey, I serve Yahweh. I serve the God of the sea and the dry land like he told the sailors. This is who I serve. He just marches around the city saying 40 days and Nineveh will be overturned. Number one, he doesn't tell them who sent him. Number two, he doesn't tell them how to avoid the calamity that he's prophesying. Hey, if you want to avoid this destruction, this is what you've got to do. Let me break it down for you, Nineveh. Some pretty important details, right? But he doesn't mention those things at all in his message. Now, some have argued that Jonah must have explained more, that he must have had had longer conversations. But we see in the text that the king of Nineveh isn't even aware of God's name. He refers to God as Elohim, just capital G, God, whereas the sailors learn the name Yahweh and they know who it is. It's the God of Israel. It's the God of the Hebrews. They know who it is that has sent Jonah. But the king of Nineveh, as he declares this fast, uh, he describes God as Elohim. He doesn't even know the name of, of God. And the king doesn't know if this citywide fast that he's proclaiming is even going to make a difference. He, he says, everybody fast and, and put sackcloth on and, and, and don't, don't eat anything and stop doing evil and, and stop in the, and the violence that you're planning to one another. And maybe, just perhaps, This God will relent. Maybe he'll change his mind and be moved to compassion. But he has no idea if it's going to work. So there's some pretty important details missing from Jonah's message here. But these are the words that God told Jonah to deliver to Nineveh. We read it in the first verse. This is the message that you are to proclaim to the Ninevites. And while Jonah seemed to understand the meaning of this prophetic word... God meant something different by these words. What do I mean by that? He says, 40 days and Nineveh will be overthrown. The Hebrew word for overthrown is the word chafak. Everybody say that, chafak. You got to use like a, you got to get the phlegm going, chafak. 
And he, he says, 40 days and Nineveh will, Nineveh will be hafak. Overthrown. This word is the same, it's the same Hebrew word used to describe the destruction of Sodom and Gomorrah. When God destroys Sodom and Gomorrah, it's the same word. He overthrew it. He overturned it. He destroyed it. But did you know that this same Hebrew word is also used in the Bible to describe transformation? Not just to be overthrown, not just to be overturned, but to be turned over. To be made upside down, to be completely transformed. Let me give you an example. In Psalm 30, verse 11, we have an example. It says, you chafak, you changed my wailing into dancing. You removed my sackcloth and clothed me with joy. You transformed my wailing into dancing. You turned it upside down. You made it something new. First Samuel 10, 6 then the spirit of the Lord will come upon you mightily and you shall prophesy with them and you shall be changed hafak, into another man. You shall be transformed, turned upside down, made something completely different. Let me ask you, when you walk around your city and when you watch the news today at home, what is it that you're declaring over these places? What is it that you're thinking in your mind? Some of you might be thinking this country is headed for hell in a handbasket. Man, our world is just being turned upside down. And while you may notice some of those things happening, perhaps it is the time to say, God, you have transformed cities in the past and you can do it again. You have transformed leadership in the past and you can do it again. Bring your presence to our town. Bring your presence to our state. Bring your presence to our country. God, I'm crying out to you. I'm standing in the gap as an intercessor. And I'm, I'm inviting you, Holy Spirit, to make a difference, to transform, to overturn it, to turn it upside down, to make it new. Jonah was prophesying about Nineveh's destruction, and the Ninevites responded as such. But God knew that this message would bring about the city's transformation. And he used a word of judgment to usher in his mercy. It was almost like God was playing a little trick on Jonah going, you think you know what you're saying. You think you're getting excited about this destruction of the city. But I've actually got you saying something different. I have you prophesying over the transformation of the city. The words that I'm giving you is going to change this city. 40 days and this city will be transformed. Let's continue reading. <clears throat> Verse 5. It says the Ninevites believed God. Notice that they didn't believe Jonah. It doesn't say that. It says they believed God. Elohim. A fast was proclaimed and all of them from the greatest to the least put on sackcloth. When Jonah's warning reached the king of Nineveh, he rose from his throne, took off his royal robes, covered himself with sackcloth and sat down in the dust. This is the proclamation he issued in Nineveh. By the decree of the king and his nobles, do not let, do not let people or animals, herds or flock taste anything. Do not let them eat or drink, but let the people and animals be covered with sackcloth. You notice that even the cows fasted. Even the cows fasted. Let them be covered with sackcloth. Let everyone Call urgently on God. Let them give up their evil ways and their violence. Who knows? God may yet relent with compassion and with compassion turn from his fierce anger so that we will not perish. Some historians have pointed out that uh, during the time of Jonah's mission, Nineveh, uh, Assyria, which Nineveh was the capital city of Assyria, and Assyria was experiencing a series of famines and plagues and revolts and even eclipses that were happening around this time, all of which were seen to the Ninevites as omens for far worse things that were going to come. And so some have argued that God, this was God's way of preparing the ground for Jonah, of preparing the Ninevites, that there's something else coming this state of affairs would have made both rulers and subjects unusually attuned to a message of a visiting prophet. Somebody who comes from God. And what do the people do? They change their ways. Don't they? 
They repent. They fast. They give up the evil and violence towards one another. But did you notice that they do not make a commitment to to Yahweh like the sailors did in chapter 1? The sailors repent and they make vows to the Lord. They make vows. They fear Yahweh and they make vows to the Lord. But we don't see that happening here in Nineveh. Did you know about a century later, God used a prophet named Nahum to predict the destruction of Nineveh. And the destruction of Nineveh happened about 150 years after Jonah's mission. So Jonah's message and this repentance was only short-lived. They changed their ways, but they didn't change their hearts. They changed their ways enough to get them by for a century and a half, but they did not change their hearts. The book of Nahum describes the destruction of Nineveh uh, in Nahum 2, verses 1 and 13. It says, an attacker advances against you, Nineveh. Guard the fortress. Watch the road. Brace yourselves. Marshal all your strength. I am against you, declares the Lord Almighty. I will burn up your chariots in smoke, and the sword will devour your young lions. I will leave you no prey on earth. The voices of your messengers will no longer be heard. See, we can see Nineveh's repentance is only temporary. Nineveh's repentance is only temporary. They changed their ways, but they could not change their hearts. This is another example in Scripture that points to the necessity of a sacrificial Savior. You can change your ways, but that's only temporary. Only the Holy Spirit can change your heart. You can change your actions for a short period of time, but you can't change your heart. You will always revert back to sin unless Jesus renews your spirit and empowers you with his Holy Spirit to resist sin. A transformation of the heart only comes when we invite the Holy Spirit in and say, God, give me your strength, give me your identity, give me your spirit. Because I can't fight this on sheer willpower alone. Has anybody ever tried to do that? If I'm just gonna, I'm just gonna try harder. I'm gonna kick this addiction because I'm just gonna tie myself to the chair. That's what I'm gonna do. It doesn't work, does it? Because you can't change your heart. You can change your ways, but only the Holy Spirit can change your heart. Let the Holy Spirit in. Let Jesus in. Let Him change your heart. Let Him change your heart. And what's God's response to Nineveh's repentance in verse 10? It says this, when God saw what they did and how they turned from their evil ways, he relented and he did not bring on them the destruction he had threatened. There's something really interesting happening here in verse 10 in the relationship between man and God. The, the scripture, the Hebrew says that the people turn from their evil. That's the word repentance right there. It's the Hebrew word shub. And so it means to turn away. So the people turn away from evil. And then God turns from judgment. He turns away from judgment. And the word used for God relenting or him turning also is a different word that's used uh, in a way to mean repent. And it's a word that's exclusively, uh, not exclusively, but most of the time when we see this word, it's related to when God relents or when he repents. But I want to look at this word and what this is referring to. How can God repent? What does that even mean? It doesn't mean what you think it means. But this word right here is nacham. Nacham. Say that again. Get some phlegm in your throat. Have some coffee. Nacham. And this word, it means to be sorry to console oneself, to repent, regret, to comfort, be comforted, to be moved to compassion. By the way, this word is the root of where Nahum, the one who prophesies against the destruction of evil, it's where Nahum gets his name. It means to be comforted or comforter, Nacham. It's where he gets his name. Interesting fact. The picture is of this. The picture is God relenting of his wrath by consoling himself. He gets heated up. You know, in the Bible, when it talks about someone being angry, it says that he heated up. He got hot. 
is what it says. And so uh, in Genesis, when Cain gets angry at his brother that Abel is offering an acceptable sacrifice to the Lord, it says that, that Cain got hot. He heated up himself. He heated up. And God says, why are you hot? Why are you angry? But the idea is this picture of God getting heated, of him getting angry. His wrath is coming against the evil. But God, as he relents, he comforts his own wrath. It's it's this picture of him almost ingesting his own wrath and consoling himself and putting his wrath aside to be used on a later date. And we know that that later date was the cross. It was the crucifixion. It was the moment where God, all this wrath that he had, that he had towards evil, not against people, church, not against people. God, God created people, but he hates sin. And God has all this wrath and this heat built up and he would console himself. He'd be moved to compassion in these moments. But when Jesus died on the cross, he poured all of his wrath on Jesus. He poured all the heat on Jesus. And Jesus took upon himself the wrath of God. All the anger. All of the sin that God hated. Jesus took it upon himself on the cross. This word is seen in Genesis 6.6. It says the Lord... Nahum, he regretted that he made human beings on the earth, and his heart was deeply troubled. And the question is, as God relents from the destruction that he says is coming over Nineveh, and as it says that God regrets that he had made human beings on the earth, the question is, did God change his mind about Nineveh? Or was mercy always the plan? Did God change his his mind did the actions of the ninevites change him can humans can humans change god's mind or persuade god <clears throat> another example of where god seemingly changes his mind <clears throat> is when israel builds a golden calf while moses is on mount sinai Exodus 32, God hears the revelry of the people worshiping this golden calf while he's on the mountain with Moses, and and the Lord heats up again. He starts to get angry, and he says this. He looks at Moses. He says, I've seen these people. They are a stiff-necked people. Now leave me alone so that my heat, my anger may burn against them, that I may destroy them. Then I will make you, Moses, into a great nation. And there's this fascinating exchange that takes place here. If you want to go, go read it today. But Moses looks at God and says, God, that's a bad idea for two reasons. Number one. Egypt is going to think that you are inconsistent, that you brought your people out of slavery into freedom only to kill them in the wilderness. They're going to think you are an inconsistent, wavering God. That's not going to be good PR. Don't kill your people in the desert. And he said, reason number two is you made a promise to Abraham. You said that you would make his descendants as numerous as the sand on the on the shore and the stars in the sky. You made a promise to your people That you were going to do this. And in verse 14, it says, Then the Lord, Naham, he relented and did not bring on his people the disaster he had threatened. When God heats up, Moses reminds God of his promises. This is what Christopher Wright, he's a commentator, in his commentary about Deuteronomy, this is what he says about the story. This story explores the mystery about prayer in general and intercession in particular and raises questions. Was God really serious in this declared threat? If Moses had not interceded, would God have carried out the destruction of Israel? If God was not really planning to destroy the people, did God only pretend to listen to Moses' prayer? Did Moses actually change God's mind? And here's the key right here. The real paradox is that in appealing To God to change, Moses was actually appealing to God to be consistent. Which may be a significant clue to the dynamic of all genuine intercessory prayer. Do you get what Moses was doing? He was reminding God of who he was. Not that God needed it. But there's something about intercession. Something about stepping in the gap. 
where God is waiting for his people to remember who he is. God is waiting for his people to call on who he is and remember his promises. And the minute that he says, I'm going to take out these people, I'm going to destroy Israel, Moses says, that's not who you are. That I know you, God. That's not who you are. You made a promise and you keep your promises. God was reminding him of who he, or Moses was reminding God of who he is. Here's the bottom line, is God does not change. God is consistent. He's always consistent with his character. He is always the same. Yesterday, today, and forever, he is the same. This is what Numbers twenty three nineteen says. God is not human that he should lie, not a human being that he should naham, change his mind. Does he speak and then not act? Does he promise and not fulfill? Did God promise destruction to Nineveh and not fulfill his promise? And whenever it appears in scripture that God changed his mind, we have to consider the differences between conditional and unconditional declarations. There's a difference, church. Between conditional promises of God and unconditional promises of God. Conditional declarations are promises that God makes when the other party holds or doesn't hold to their part of the covenant. Nineveh is a great example of this. This was a conditional declaration that God made over the city. Because in Jeremiah 18, 7 through 10, it says this. God says through the prophet Jeremiah, if at any time I announce that a nation or kingdom is to be uprooted, torn down and destroyed, and if that nation I warned repents of its evil, then I will relent and not inflict on it the disaster I had planned. And if at another time I announce that a nation or kingdom is to be built up and planted, if it does evil in my sight and does not obey me, then I will reconsider the good I had intended to do for it. Conditional and unconditional. Unconditional declarations are promises that God makes regardless of how the other person responds. It's the promise that he made to Abraham. He came to Abraham and he made Abraham an unconditional promise, an unconditional declaration saying, Abraham, I'm going to make you into a great nation. I'm going to multiply your descendants. You are going to be the father of a multitude. The promise that God made to David, the Davidic promise, he told David, he said, your descendants will always sit on the throne. And from you, the root of your offspring will bring salvation. He makes a promise to David. These promises are unconditional declarations. And we have to recognize the conditional and unconditional promises of God in our life. I'm sure the first thing that everybody wants to know, the first question that we need to answer is salvation conditional or unconditional. Do you have to do anything to earn salvation? No, you don't have to do anything to earn salvation. Is there something you have to do to attain it? Yes, there is. John 3.16, for God so loved the world that he gave his one and only son, that here's the condition, whoever believes in him shall not perish but have eternal life. Romans 10:9 If you declare, here's the condition, if you declare with your mouth Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. You didn't do anything to earn that invitation, but there is a condition attached to this promise. You have to put your faith and trust in Jesus. If you're still unconvinced that it's conditional, In Matthew 22, Jesus likens the kingdom of heaven to a wedding feast. And it's this story where uh, there's a master of the wedding, the, the bridegroom. He tells his servants, I want you to invite all of these people. And he gives them a list of 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 guests that should attend. And so the servants go out and they invite all the people to the wedding feast. And one by one, each person invited says, oh, I'm busy. I can't make it. I've got I just got married. I just bought this plot of land. All of these are are valid answers to not attend a wedding feast in the first century, but they're making excuses. And they say, I just can't make it. And the servants come back to the the bridegroom. They say, we invited everybody, but nobody can come. We sent the invitation, but they didn't accept the invitation. They didn't step into that promise. And so you know what he says? He says, well, then go into the streets and ask anybody that you can find. Everybody lying around. 
Ask anyone you see. Invite them into the door. Invite them in. See, did, did any of these people earn the invitation? No. They did not do anything to earn the invitation, but they have to get up. They've got to put on the clothing, the bridal garments, the wedding garments. They clothe themselves in wedding garments, and they attend the wedding. They make it to the feast. They accept the invitation. Another example of a conditional promise is, uh, is in James 4, 7. It says, submit yourself then to God, resist the devil, and he will flee from you. The condition is if you resist the devil, if you submit yourself to God and, and, and resist the devil, then the devil will flee from you. Another one is in John 8, 31 through 32. Jesus says, if you hold, if you hold to my teaching, you are really my disciples. Then you will know the truth and the truth will set you free. You've got to know the truth. If you want freedom, if you want freedom, then you have to surrender to the truth. You've got to know the truth. You've got to submit yourself to God. Submit yourself to his word. Who here wants peace? Just wants there's a condition attached to your peace. Did you know that? Isaiah 26.3 says, You will keep in perfect peace those whose minds are steadfast because they trust in you. Peace comes when you trust in God. When you trust in who he is and what he's done, you can have peace. There's a peace that surpasses all understanding that is exclusively reserved for followers of Jesus. There's a joy that cannot be explained, that is exclusively reserved for the followers of Jesus, those who are filled with his Holy Spirit, those who have a relationship with God. Jonah's ministry is not one that we see these days very often. I think he's most commonly compared to those people in Portland or or the person on the street corner with a sign and a megaphone shouting, Turn or burn! It's not a popular evangelism strategy, is it? And if we want to see revival in our day, how should we share Jesus with others? What is the model? Many people would say that if we want revival, we should emulate Jonah by preaching salvation through faith. That we need to preach salvation to people, just give them Jesus. And others think that maybe we should emulate Jonah by providing social social services in cities rather than doing evangelism. However, Jonah did not go to Nineveh just to quietly do social work. He preached the threat of divine judgment loudly in God's name. This is a quote from Timothy Keller. He says this, usually those who are most concerned about working for social justice do not stand up and speak clearly about the God of the Bible's judgment on those who do not do as well. On the other hand, those who publicly preach repentance most forcefully are not usually known for demanding justice for the oppressed. Nevertheless, this text encourages us to do both. In this instance, God seeks social reform through his prophet, a change in the Ninevites' exploitative and violent behavior. Yet he also directs that city, uh, he also directs that the city should be told about God's wrath who will punish sin. Sharing our faith with others needs to include both words and actions. People need to see Jesus in you, and they need to hear the truth of the word of God, who it is that you serve and what it is that you believe. Meeting spiritual needs and practical needs simultaneously. The social work that God did in Nineveh included bringing peace to the victims of violence. That we see uh, that the king commanded that the people give up their evil and the violence directed towards one another. This was a city that was oppressing one another. They were violent towards one another. There was social injustice happening in the city. And suddenly, as people repent and this message of God's judgment rings out from Jonah, the people give up the violence that they were planning to do one another, and there is a temporary peace. In the city, there's a peace that is experienced among the people of Nineveh. Now, most likely, God hasn't called you to walk around afraid of shouting, This place is going to be destroyed if you don't turn to God. But just like Jonah, God has called you on a mission, He's called you. It's a co mission. I know that was corny, 
But listen, it's a mission that we are all in together. This is our church's collective mission. We have a commission from Jesus. We're all part of this commission in Matthew 28, 19 through 20. It says, therefore, go and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit and teaching them to obey everything I have commanded you. And surely I am with you always to the very end of the age. I'm going to ask Christina to come up and play the keys as we begin to close. Did you notice the unconditional promise? The unconditional promise at the end of this commission. I will be with you to the end of the age. I will go out with you. As you go out, I will always be with you. Does it say we will always feel God's presence? No. But he will always be there. Oftentimes in our sin, oftentimes when we, when we disobey, it feels like God has stepped away from us, that he's checked out, he went somewhere else. But the reality is, is that you are the one. When you disobey God, you are the one through your guilt and your shame, you step away from God's presence. And God chases after you going, no, 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 don't, don't do that. I sent Jesus so that this wouldn't happen, so that there wouldn't be distance between us. But when you mess up, just just stay here. Stay next to me. I, there's nothing you can do that I can't forgive. There's nothing you can do that I won't redeem if you trust in me. Because I've got a plan for your life. I've got a plan for this town. And you are part of that plan. Real quick, there's three things that God says in the great, that Jesus says in the Great Commission. Number one, you have to go. You've got to go. Don't get comfortable. Don't stay in your slippers. You've got to go. You have to go where hurting people are. You have to look for people who need good news and go to them. They're not just going to come out of the woodwork and come up to you. Sometimes God orchestrates that to happen, and that's pretty nice, isn't it? But Jesus is saying, you have to go find those people. Go find the broken. Find the hurting. Get out of your comfort zone. Do things that you're not used to. Take a risk and watch me move. But go. The second thing he says is, I want you to show them. Make disciples. Show people what it's like to follow me. A disciple is someone who follows another person. A disciple follows his master and just observes his life and sees what he's like and sees how he acts and sees what he does in hard times. A disciple looks at his master and the master shows them what to do. And he says, go and make disciples. Show people what it's like to follow me. Show them with your actions how to forgive other people. Show them with your actions how to serve other people. Let the world look at your life and let them see the conflict. Let them see the, the discomfort. Let them see what's going on and let them see how you handle it alongside the Holy Spirit. People are watching the church. They are watching you to see what do disciples look like? What do followers of Jesus look like? Jesus says, go, go find the hurting and just show them what it looks like to forgive. Show them what it looks like to pray and serve one another, to be a follower of Jesus. And the last thing that he says is you need to use words. You need to teach them to obey everything I've commanded. Teach people to obey God. Use your words. None of this 20 year evangelism stuff. I've been next to my neighbor for 20 years and I've been working on him for 20 years. Haven't said a word about God, but I think he's picking it up. I think he's getting it. Can I tell you? No, he's not. He's not. Not until you say, hey, Jesus loves you. I serve Jesus. Is there anything I can do for you? And you begin to use your words and teach them about the Bible. Teach them about what what God says about them. How much he loves them. How much he gave his life for them. Can I tell you that the gospel is called good news for a reason? It's because people need good news. And they want to hear good news. But oftentimes we, we carry out this message of evangelism. This message about sharing Jesus' 
oh, they're not going to want to hear this. This is just heavy. It's going to require so much of them. And what if they don't like me after afterwards? And, and Jesus says, so what? I didn't ask you to be comfortable. The truth is what sets people free. And just like the people reacted to a word that would have been very unpopular, you do not know how God is going to use your words to change your neighbors, to change your co-workers, to change your family members. God can use your words in mighty ways. You don't have to be a scholar. You don't have to know everything about the Bible. You have to trust that the Holy Spirit is going to use your words. Do you believe that you're filled with the Holy Spirit? If you know Jesus, do you believe you're filled with the Holy Spirit? Do you believe that he can use whatever words come out of your mouth? And oftentimes all it takes is just boldness to begin to speak. And as you begin to speak, it starts to flow out in the words that God gives you. I've talked to people who, uh, they tell people about Jesus and they say, I don't even know what happened. It was like my mind just went on autopilot. I could just feel like the Holy Spirit, like supercharging my words. That happens, church. That happens where the Holy Spirit just takes over. And he says, you, you went, you I told you to go and you went, you stepped out, you started talking. I'll do the rest. I'll do the rest. Go and show. I wish I had another word that rhymed with those two. But use words. Would you grab your communion elements? What an appropriate time to remember the sacrifice that Jesus made. And this is the moment. This is the message. We can't change our we can't change our own hearts. We can't change in us the desire for sin, but if you have called Jesus your Lord and your Savior, then you can believe that a new spirit has been deposited in you. And that spirit is one that says, Dad, that calls God Abba, Dad. It's a spirit that desires the things of God. It's a spirit that is filled with the power of God to do the things of God. And this is what we remember as we take communion, that it was the blood of Jesus that did that for us that washed away our sin. And as he rose from the grave and he claimed victory over death, he gave us new life as well. He raised us to new life. He raised a new spirit within us. And so take the bread in your hand. Heavenly Father, I thank you that your word says in Isaiah 53 that your body was broken for our transgressions. You were crushed for our iniquities. By your wounds we are healed. I pray for every broken heart in this room. I pray for God every emotional wound that the, the people maybe maybe are walking in here with just stress and anxiety and their relationships are falling apart and um, I just see a dark cloud over some people in this place. It's like they've been living in a fog. They can't see more than two feet in front of their face. Jesus wants you to know, I want to take care of that for you. Jesus says, come to me if you're heavy laden, if you're weary, and I will give you rest. And then he says, trade me. My yoke is easy and my burden is light. Give me your anxiety and I'll give you my peace. I pray for those in this room right now who are expecting a miracle in their life. Come on, if you need if you need God to come through in a mighty way in your life, either financially, physically, uh, whatever that is, would you just raise your hand? If you need a miracle in your life, if you need God to move, would you raise your hand? If you're sitting next to a person with their hand raised, just put, maybe put your hands on their shoulder. Or just extend your hand to them and believe in faith this with me. Right now, God, we believe that you are the God of the impossible. 
that you make a way where there's no way. And we can try and try in our own strength to fix this thing that we're stuck in. But Lord, we know that only you can do it. Only you can do it. So Father, we believe in your promises. We believe that you have come to give us life and life to the full. We trust you, God. And we call out for a miracle right now this morning in Jesus' name. We love you, Jesus. Let's take the bread together. Hold the cup. God, I thank you that it's by your blood that we are cleansed from our sin. I don't know how many times I've walked with shame and guilt and it's kept me from you for years. It's kept me from feeling like I can ask you for things. I'm, and I feel like I'm just not worthy. I feel like I, I, that you don't hear my prayers because I've done so many bad things and I, and you don't, you don't want to be with me, that you don't like me, God, that you just tolerate me sometimes and that's a lie. If you believe that, if you believe that God just tolerates you sometimes and he's, he's frustrated and that's a lie because what Jesus' blood did is it made a way for you to approach God's presence. Jesus, I thank you that I can approach your, I can come to your throne. I can approach your presence with confidence knowing that your blood has made me clean. We remember what you did on the cross and we're so thankful for it. In your name we pray. Let's take this together. Would you stand with me, church? Father, I pray that you would bless these people. God, bless us this week as we step out in boldness, as we go and we find the lost. Help us to show them and to model what it looks like to follow you and And give us the words to teach people to obey your commandments. We love you, Jesus. We thank you for your spirit in this place. Amen. Amen. Bless you, church. I'm looking forward to next Sunday. We'll see you there.